So welcome back, folks. Welcome to TransUnion's Extra Credit, where we try to deliver insights and not product. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Extra Credit, a TransUnion podcast. I'm joined by Craig LaChapelle, my co-host, and super excited to have Rachel Goldberg and Allison Schuster with us today, both of whom are with TransUnion. And they're going to be providing a point of view on what's going on in Washington, D.C., on the regulatory landscape and some policy initiatives. And so, Craig, we'll turn it over to you to introduce the two of them. Great. Well, welcome, Rachel and Allison. Let me start first uh, with Rachel. Your title is Global Head of External Affairs. That That is an impressive title. What What exactly does it mean? It's a new function, really, for TransUnion. Um, my purview really spans a couple of corporate functions, including global government relations uh, and public affairs. And within that, you know, there's a lot of different external stakeholders that uh, my team really is responsible for managing. Great. Allison, you have a similar title, but different title, head of U.S. government relationships. I'm assuming that's a a uh, U.S.-centric view. Um, And if that's the case, I you know, I'd like to ask you, Allison, as well as you, Rachel, what's what's your background? What does one do to get into external affairs or government relations? So, so what's your view on that, Allison? Well, I went to law school quite a few years ago and really wanted, really believed that I wanted to be a litigator. Um, but I was living in D.C. at the time, and I ended up working on the Hill and getting introduced into into the world of politics and and enjoying it. And the reason I like government relations so much is it's a lot about corporate strategy, um, and it interplays well with kind of how we're engaging on the Hill or at the state level or on the political engagement side. And so there's a lot of different strategic ways you can apply different, you know, procedures and ideas and, and ways to engage with external stakeholders. So... Great. Rachel, similar background? Slightly different background. I, I am not a lawyer, um, but I will say that I think the common thread amongst a lot of people in this you know, chosen profession is that we're all problem solvers at heart uh, and we're all we're all communicators. Right. I mean, we we can take complex issues that sometimes are poorly understood and play a role in, in translating that for a, a very specific audience. I got to tell you, both of you do a great recruiting pitch for uh, government relationships and external affairs. So thank you. Um, I'm assuming both of you live in the D.C. area. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Yeah. So as always, we've prepared a bit of trivia to our guests. We have two categories, um, two topics. One is D.C. sports. The other is D.C. food and wine. So I'll let you, Allison, pick which category you'd like to cover. Uh, D.C. food and wine for 100. All right. Yeah, I'm with you. Do you know what the oldest restaurant is in D.C. proper? I believe it's Old Ebbet Grill. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Three, name three classic restaurants in the D.C. area starting, now I say area, not just D.C., Starting with the word old. You've already named one of them. Old Ebbet Grill. Um, well, there I, was Old Glory at one point. Ooh, good Does one. that I'll, still exist? 
at down in Georgetown? I'm not sure, but I'll give it to you because I really don't right. know. Of a, oh, I don't know of a third. It was kind uh, of a trick one. This is I'm struggling with this. A team effort. Um, think Montgomery County along the river. Like old what? Washington <laughs> Grill. Maybe, but I was thinking. I was thinking Old Anglers Inn. Oh is, yeah, yeah. Is there no Old Country or, Buffet in Washington? Not that I'm aware of. No, not anymore. It's I don't a, think. A, classic mall establishment maybe it's a west coast thing <laughs> well it's a good segue because my next question is which hospitality group started as an a and w root beer stand in the area and then became hot shops in dc um i wonder if it's that it's headquartered here a and w root beer stand truly no idea marriott Wow, how about that? I didn't realize that. That that turned out well for them. <laughs> it did. It did. They it made did. some good strategic <laughs> moves. Yeah. So these this one, this next category or the next question, I think is gonna be pretty easy. I'm just gonna give you a blank. You need to fill it in. Ben's blank bowl. Ben's chili bowl. There you go. Hawk and uh. now this one is specific to Georgetown. Blank tavern. Martins. Bingo. Got them all right. Last question before we transition to Rachel and sports. What is your favorite restaurant in DC? Oh, great question. Um, you know, I I do just love a, a classic burger at La Diplomat. I'm a I'm a simple, simple gal. So um I think that's that's what I'm gonna enjoy on on any given night. So that's my answer. Yeah, that's I like it. That's a good option. I'll I'll double that, Allison. I think I think they have the best burger in the city. I haven't been, but I have to try it. I like that. I That's a tough DC question because oh. DC has really become a foodie town. Mm-hmm. Not traditionally one, but it is increased. Yeah. You're... All We've right, got Rachel. Michelin stars. You know, it's it, we're on the map. Yep. Rachel, are you ready for DC sports? Oh, I'm I'm never going to be ready for this suite of questions, but <laughs> this, this one's me. this one's going to be more difficult. Maybe. Name the last three Washington, D.C. professional teams to win their respective championships in order. <laughs> I, I can help a little bit since you helped me. Okay, if, you can name, if you can name the year, you get you get extra credit. Nats 2019. Yep. Caps 20. Yeah, Caps 2018. Yep. And then the third would be... Was it the, the definitely bullpen? not the Commodore Commanders? What's their new name? The Commanders. Yeah, definitely the not bullpen? them. The old um, basketball team. No, you, you're pretty good. And actually, if you don't include DC United, it mm. is the Commanders in like 1991 or 1992, Nin right? Yeah, yeah, the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. DC United did win it in 04. All right, Josh. Enough tomfoolery. Let's get into questions related to uh, regulation, why we're really here. I'll hand it over to you since you've really been sitting on your hands so far. Why don't you kick it off? That sounds good, Craig. And I just, for the record, you gave me a lot of heat on the last episode for my my trivia torture chamber. So uh, I'm yeah, glad you had to go out of this month. All right. All right. So wanted to dig in and maybe to start, 
there's always a lot going on in the Hill and in D.C. And the folks who are listening to this podcast, many of them are lenders at, at credit card companies or banks or credit unions in the U.S. What should they really be paying attention to or, or what's happening that you think would be of most interest to them as you look at what's top of the list right now in, in D.C.? Sure. So I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, and just to provide a little bit of atmospherics, I think it's important to keep in mind um, the the really, really narrow margins, historically narrow margins that Democrats have in both the House and the Senate. When, while they have the House, Senate, and White House, these really, really slim margins are make it very difficult to legislate, and it also makes it extremely difficult to pass any of the president's priorities. And so over the past year and a half, we've witnessed um, a lot of internal struggles amongst members of the same party. And, um, you know, I think that there was a lot of energy coming out of 2020. I think as we kind of keep rolling through 2022, we're seeing a lot of energy ending up on the Republican side. I think folks are it's pretty conventional wisdom that, um, you know, Republicans are slated to take back the House and probably the Senate um, in this midterms election. So I think we have a kind of keeping that in mind uh, sort of dictates some of the policy decisions that are made up on the Hill. So just in terms of current policy that I would, you know, encourage folks to keep an eye out for. One of the hotter debates right now is the issue of um, federal a federal privacy standard. This has been kicked around for a really, really long time. There's been a huge desire from the business community and from members of Congress, quite frankly, to establish a federal privacy standard. And in the absence of any sort of meaningful federal privacy legislation, a lot of states have taken up their own versions. Um, you know, we saw California a few, year, few years ago, I think that was in 2018. We also saw Colorado kind of develop their own. And, and, and that's also another trend that I think is important to keep in mind. In the absence of sort of meaningful legislating at the federal level, states who have much quicker processes and much smaller groups of stakeholders tend to act in the absence. And so back to the current privacy debate, um, you know, as of recently, there's a rumor that there is a bipartisan agreement um, in both cha chambers. And you know, we haven't seen any text yet, but I will also point out um, America Competes and USICA, which is the China Competes bill. That's been kicked around for quite a while. And I, you know, they, there ha has been a formal conference and that's when the House and the Senate work together on their independent versions to reach a sort of consensus and another agreement. And, you know, I think that still has a long road ahead. Again, just Harkening back to these really slim margins, it's just really difficult to get things done at the federal level right now. Um, but that is taking up a lot of airtime. And, and as we inch closer and closer to August recess, legisl meaningful legislative days are dwindling and, and time is sort of, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say time is running out because a lot can get done in a short amount of time. But there there are only so many days left. And so I'll, pa I'll pause there, Rachel. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I think, you know, you touched on a lot of the high notes. The one thing that I will just maybe add is that there's still a lot of operating environment challenges and headwinds, right? I think, you know, policymaking is is difficult enough, right? But then, you know, you factor in the um, the still ongoing coronavirus situation, the inflation environment that we're in right now with consumer prices, 
you know, some of the geopolitical issues that we're experiencing. You know, there's there's a lot that is consuming oxygen in Washington at the moment. Great, that was a fantastic insight. You know, I'm going to go back to something you said uh, earlier, Allison, about shifting the majorities in at least one and maybe two of the houses in the legislative branch. What do you anticipate the regulatory impact would be if we shift control of of Congress both immediately over as well as over the next few years? That all depends and it all sort of remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I think if if Congress flips to Republicans, there will be a lot of uh, focus and attention on oversight for the regulatory agencies. That's sort of traditionally what happens. It'll be interesting to see how President Biden tries to work with the new majority and, and how he tries to sort of reach across the aisle and what exactly that will look like. And I think there is, you know, given his long tenure in the Senate, I think there is a lot of opportunity there. I mean, he's worked with these members for a really long time and has a lot of deep, deep working relationships with these people. You know, I think it will also depend on the margin. So I heard recently that, you know, one poll was predicting a 50-50 Senate again, which would make it challenging um, again to work in or, you know, pending in the House, if the House has a pretty robust Republican majority that, you know, provides the House the opportunity to pass a lot of bills and priorities and, and you know, identify more messaging exercises. Um, so, you know, part of the conventional wisdom around Republicans taking back uh, the legislative majorities is, is just when a president's party is in power. Traditionally, they lose seats in the midterms. That's just how it's been historically. So I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Great, thank you. Again, I want to go back to something that uh, it might have been you, Rachel, who touched on, but you know, we are, everyone is aware that inflation has been elevated over the last six months. And as a reaction to that, we're seeing interest rates increases by the Fed. You know, assuming this pain continues, do you see either Congress or regulators shifting in, in how they react, either from a enforcement standpoint or some other perspective? I don't necessarily know if enforcement is the first thing that comes to mind. I will say that every almost every conversation I have with a member of Congress, the topic of inflation comes up because that's just how frequently they are hearing it from their constituents. You know, a lot of these members of Congress receive regular calls, emails, letters from um, the constituents they represent and these sort of skyrocketing prices and, and sort of strain on the pocketbook is definitely something that is top of mind for members on both sides of the aisle. Um, and that's driving a lot of the policy conversation. And, and inflation also just makes things in Congress more difficult. It's more difficult to pass a spending package. It's more difficult to pass anything relatively expensive. It's it's just, it's a lot harder to um, spend money at the federal level when, you know, voters are feeling the strains of inflation. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the focus on how does this impact consumers' pocketbooks is, I mean, it's taking up a tremendous amount of energy in Washington right now. 
I don't see that changing. Um, you know, all politics is local. And when, you know, the price of, of milk and gas is making it harder for your constituents to buy other consumer goods and live their lives, it, it quickly shifts um, priorities in, in Washington. Perfect. Thank you both. What, one of the things I wanted to ask about was the topic of financial inclusion. And that's something that we spent a lot of time talking with customers about. We've spent a good amount of time on this podcast thinking about that and hearing perspectives on that. Um, Karen Andres, who was on the last one, who's with the Aspen Policy Institute, spoke about an initiative they have that the TransUnion signed on to. But curious for your views on, you know, what do you see in Washington that's either in the works or conversations that are going on focused on financial access and financial inclusion? I know that's something that's batted around perpetually, but what's what's changed or, or what's interesting that's happening right now on that front? Yeah, it's 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 a great question and a great topic. And financial inclusion is definitely a policy area that gets bipartisan support. Um, TransUnion has publicly supported the Credit Access and Inclusion Act, which would allow the use of alternative data in credit reports, which is you know a huge opportunity to make more thinner filed or no filed individuals have um, start building their credit files and helping them get access to credit. This bill has been. Uh, introduced and reintroduced for quite a while. It's in both chambers. It has been afforded bipartisan support on, you know, at, at multiple times. Um, unfortunately, you know, hearkening back to kind of how difficult it is to get things signed into law right now, it, it hasn't made it to the president's desk. But, you know, we are actively engaging with those stakeholders and trying to provide, um, you know, TransUnion's position on these types of bills because we are you know, very publicly supportive of these types of efforts. Josh, you mentioned the Aspen Institute effort, um, which essentially calls for the Biden administration to develop a national strategy around financial inclusion. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways that certain stakeholders have coalesced around various solutions, right? Whether it's solutions focus on rural populations or urban populations or the young or the or military members right there's there's no shortage of of matters that probably need their own strategies but um rather than sort of approaching it piecemeal you know that the aspen institute is is coordinating i think they have close to a hundred signatories now to this effort and transunion was pleased to add our name to the to the list because we think it's we think it's critical that there is an overarching strategy to to drive these solutions forward in a way that are you know that is complementary and and leverages I think very importantly for TransUnion leverages the existing chassis and ecosystem that has served consumers so well for so many decades right and I think from our lens you know we're big believers in the power of data and we believe that more data is the key to helping consumers access credit on better terms. That's great. And I, I want to have a follow-up question that a couple of those points made me think of. And, and in that last episode too, Karen, one of the points she made was um, financial institutions have a lot of data on consumers and there are policymakers and people doing their best work to try and think about policies or initiatives. But there's a really important role for financial institutions or providers to play in helping share data and and really inform that process. Uh, I suspect that for many of our listeners, 
it's it's difficult to envision kind of exactly what that looks like or you kind of have the sense of well whatever happens in washington happens in washington we've got our people there working on it but do you have examples of you know when data was shared or when quantitative stuff or or other measures that really help drive policy outcomes for the the better for consumers so you know typically when we talk about uh alternative data you know, we, you know, it's, it's most commonly referring to things like rent data, utility data, um, your mobile phone payments, you know, payments that consumers are making on a regular basis that maybe aren't traditionally captured on a credit report, right? But they, it still tells a very compelling story about someone's propensity to repay. And I think for, for, for us, we see a tremendous amount of value and the insights of having that kind of data on the, the core credit file. We we think that there's a lot of other forms of data that could be also very, very helpful. And one in particular that we spent a lot of time on in the last um, several months is buy now, pay later data. You know, the consumers who, uh, who tend to um, utilize that kind of credit. Great, that was a fantastic insight. You know, I'm gonna go back to something you said uh, earlier, Allison. Or, or or financing are tend to be younger consumers, and you know we think it's a once in a generation uh, credit inclusion opportunity. If we can get that data reported uh, at scale to the credit bureaus, and we're actively working with uh, a number of a number of lenders to get that data on the file. Perfect. Thank you. We, I wanted to to go back to we we spent a lot of time talking about DC and things that are happening at the federal level and Allison I think maybe you made the point or Rachel earlier about the California Privacy Initiative and and some of the things that happen at the local level are there things that are going on now at the the state or local level that are particularly interesting nationally um, in terms of implications for financial services. Yeah, so, you know, for, for starters, I think uh, it's important to recognize how quickly the state legislatures move and how unique each process is at each state level. Privacy is a really good one to talk about because the interplay between the state level privacy laws and the federal privacy laws make it exceptionally difficult from a compliance standpoint. And, um, you know, I think it's just important to keep in mind that, you know, the longer it goes on, that there is no sort of like comprehensive federal privacy standard, more states are going to adopt their own sort of their own versions of that. And then eventually, I think kind of what a lot of the business community or, you know, if, if you're a company that operates in all 50 states, complying with 50 different state laws, for something like privacy is, is something that's like, you know, a huge compliance challenge. And just in terms of operationally um, making sure that you're checking every box and making sure that you're sort of like thoroughly vetting every different law is, is a huge challenge. And so um, I think, you know, we've seen in both Virginia and Utah some some versions of state privacy laws that um, we think are really strike the right balance between protecting the consumer and providing uh, sort of operational guardrails for businesses that make it, um, you know, 
reasonable to comply with. And so we've we've been pleased to see those. Um, but they they pop up all the time. And again, like I said earlier, they have very quick sort of life cycles where it can start to move really quickly and it can get to the governor's desk and it's vetoed the next day. And that's just kind of the nature of state government relations advocacy. So I, t I keep a lookout for state privacy laws. Got it. No, that's helpful. Last question I have. Craig, Craig asked a bit about your how you got into government affairs and the work that you do. So uh, building on that, I'm curious, why do you like being in financial services, right? Being in government affairs and the type of work that you do could be in, in many sectors. What's, what's exciting about financial services for you? You know, I th one of the things that I love about financial services is just the work that we do touches so many people. Every consumer financial market is underpinned by the work that we do. And that's incredibly significant. I'm a true believer that the work that we do is is so critical to the broader operating of, you know, the markets that we serve and, and consumers that we serve, that it, you know, it's a real privilege to to get to sort of, you know, be a happy warrior and fight the good fight here. That's so true. I'll just add, you know, I'm a little bit newer to TransUnion. I joined in January of this year and I um what really attracted me to TransUnion was just the the company's values and the way that it it's evolving over time and and really innovating in the data and the credit reporting space and I just think it's a really exciting and dynamic company to be a part of so that that's that's my two cents. Perfect, thank you. Great. Thanks in general for spending time with this. This content was uh, fantastic. We appreciate your perspective and hopefully you'll revisit us again next year. Thank you both. Thanks. Thanks guys. Thanks.